Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon. You're listening to Queering the Air. We'd like to start the show by acknowledging that 3CR broadcasts from land stolen from the the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'm joined in the studio today by Jesse and Leah. Hi. Hi. And we're going to be talking today about um, the detention of the five Chinese feminists. And also Leah had a really incredible interview that we're going to be playing as well. Yes, it's very exciting. Thanks for joining us, Leah. Mm. Thank you. Um, To start off, could you tell us a little bit about the case um, for those who haven't heard much about it before? Yeah, that's right. So five uh, feminist and uh, other activists, uh, five activists were detained in China um, uh, just before International Women's Day on March the 8th, which is a pretty big celebration in China, I guess, because of the country's socialist history. Um, It's sort of probably, I would say, a a bigger event uh, in China than it is in Australia. So uh, these five women were organising together a uh, action around sexual harassment on public transport, planning to hand out stickers and things. Um, on March the 8th, and so they were picked up by police in different places on the 6th and 7th of March, and they were actually detained for 37 days, which is the um, the full length of time that I think people can be detained in China without a formal um, uh, without a formal case. Um, and they have been since uh, released on April the 13th uh, on bail, but uh, their charges remain. So it was under a law where they can still um, still be charged and, and still have their freedom restricted and uh, their travel and, and things like that restricted. Uh, so the campaign is ongoing, but there was a really major campaign for their release, uh, both within China from all different sections of uh, I suppose the um, of civil society and the sort of activist communities, labor activists, student activists, feminists, obviously LGBT activists, um, and uh, I guess all other NGOs were also watching to see kind of what would happen with this. Uh, but also a really big uh, international sort of campaign um, and a, a really successful, I think, social media campaign um, across all of these different platforms with people you know taking photos and making um, statements. So yeah, the five women were Li Tingting, uh, who's 25 and also known as Meizi and uh, part of, um, you know, she's an LGBT activist at uh, the Yu Renping Centre in Beijing. Uh, Wu Rongrong, who is 30 years old and uh, works on uh, AIDS and HIV issues, um, also women's rights at, at Yu Renping. And uh, Wang Man, who's 33 and um, has been working on wage equality uh, issues and Wei Tingting, who is a LGBT activist and I think recently was nominated for a, an award for raising awareness of biphobia in China. And right. uh, the last one was Zheng Chiran, who's 25 and has uh, campaigned heavily around a lot of different gender discrimination acts, but also on labor rights issues. Um, so, yeah, sort of between them, they were really connected to yeah. a lot of different issues and uh activist kind of world in China, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I think this is the the first case of uh, people being released after a campaign uh, in this way. So it's pretty big deal. Yeah, it is a very big deal. And one thing that struck me is just 
And as you were um, listing off uh, the people who were detained, is that they were all so young and the activities yeah. that they were planning were not exactly... So innocuous. Yeah, yeah. they were very, very mild, I suppose. Like um, handing out stickers. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So they've done a few different um, demos, but they've all been... Uh, in the past that were brought up sort of through through the month that they were detained. But they were um, all quite creative actions and not huge. Like uh, they did a, a – a few of them were involved in an action around um, domestic violence that involved uh, kind of staging a, a – uh, essentially a media stunt uh, in wedding dresses like covered in blood and right. things like that. So I think maybe partly like uh, – it's the the use of new media and and the fact that they've been able to get a lot of attention um, in ways that maybe the authorities aren't used to. Right, um, okay. But, yeah, the person that I interviewed uh, talks a lot about that. She's um, Dr Wang Zun, who's based at the University of Michigan. She's a gender studies lecturer there but has also been uh, really involved uh, in this campaign to for, for the women to be released and their charges to be dropped, um, but also I think was um, quite involved in setting up gender studies as a discipline in China in the early 90s. Great. So, well, let's yeah. have a listen to that in, um, the first part of that interview uh, right now. What's the current status of feminist organising in China? Has there been a resurgence or more a shift into new tactics and media? The question you raised is a complicated question. Uh because there's not just the one cohort of feminists, there are multiple cohorts of feminists, and uh, some feminists are situated in the system, by that I mean in the government system or in the All China Women's Federation. I, I'm not sure if you uh, have heard of All China Women's Federation, uh, it is a large national organization, horizontal, a vertical organization. Uh, everybody is on the government payroll. They have about 90,000 officials working uh, in this national organization. So they also work for uh, gender equality. That's their uh, responsibility to promote gender equality and to uh, <clears throat> take care of the interests of women and children, you know. So, and then there are this, uh, the, there are young cohort of feminists uh, that recently detained the five belong in this young cohort feminists. So different groups of feminists uh, or different cohorts uh, work on different issues and with different styles. Mm. And what is the relationship between uh, activists <coughs> like the, the five who have been who were detained and mm -hmm. uh, the organizations that are linked into the government or that are part of the government? The young ones, they do not have institutional relationship. However, uh, feminists, in, they are situated in different sides. Uh, in many cases, they all know each other. They're friends with each other. And sometimes uh, families situated in different locations will attend the same uh, activities. 
like conferences, even, you know, attending the UN organized uh, conferences. So a lot of these families crossing sectors, uh, they know each other and they're friends with each other. So what does this case mean, this uh, very widely publicised case of these five women being detained for 37 days? Mm -hmm. What does that mean now for activists in China, both on gender and LGBT rights and other issues uh, such as labour activism and student activists as well? When they were detained, uh, there was, uh, for a period of time, there was a fear that uh, feminist activities may become one of those so-called politically sensitive issues. Uh, In China, there are a lot of uh, issues labeled as politically sensitive. If you're involved in those kind of issues, you can be arrested. But up to the March the 8th, or March the 6th and 7th, actually, that's the date when they were arrested, uh, feminist activities have never been in that category. But the detention of them uh, created this kind of fear that now feminist activities could be in that category. However, during this period, feminists uh, have been very strategically worked against that kind of labeling. Okay, so and they continue to work to uh, to engage in feminist activities, especially after the the release of the five. And so after release of the five, all those scheduled activities still you know going on and revived in a sense. And uh, also, in this kind of maneuver, also pushed the official media to make the statement saying that uh, no feminist uh, issues are not sensitive issues. And that was Leah talking to Dr. Wong about uh, the Feminist Five. One thing that was interesting to me um, was uh, your conversation about, I suppose, what the future holds for um, feminist activists in China um, and this fear that feminism will become a so-called politically sensitive issue that maybe people won't want to touch anymore. Do you think that um, there may have been an intention uh, with their arrest um, to provide a disincentive to activists in China? Yeah, definitely. I think it does create a disincentive. Um, it creates a, a climate of fear where no one, uh, no one knows what will happen uh, if they participate in political action, um, particularly sort of uh, larger scale or, or you know sort of mobilising the public um, type of actions. And uh, as Dr. Wong said, up till uh, this these arrests and actually I think initially 10 feminist activists were taken into custody and five were released sort of quickly and then these five were the ones who were um, detained for 37 days which is such a long time yeah Um, but yeah I think it does it does create this fear where uh, people who are active on any political issue don't know um, what what the consequences will be because I think feminism was seen as a 
kind of safer yeah. issue, mm. uh, as Dr. Wong said, that uh, and especially the types of um, issues that these women were campaigning on were ones that the government has been working on and that exactly. they've, they've actually been, you know, in dialogue um, to some extent with uh, bodies that are part of government. Right, that's really interesting. Well, we're going to hear a bit more um, from that interview later on in the show. Uh, let's go to a track now. Now, at the start of the show, we heard Total Giovanni. Uh, what song was that, Nikki? That's a really good question. I think it's I Can't Control Myself. Terrific. Mm. And uh, what are we going to hear next? We're going to be hearing from Screaming Females with I Don't Mind It. All right, let's go to track. We just heard from Screaming Females with I Don't Mind It. And we're going to listen a little bit more to Leah's conversation with Dr. Wang from the University of Michigan. Has the state's <laughs> attitude towards gender rights and feminism changed in the last few decades? The state is not such an accurate concept mm, because sure. there's no such a thing as a monolithic entity as a state. The state is constituted of all kinds of different branches, different sections, and people with different uh, orientations and concerns. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are very strong feminists in the state. There are extremely sexist uh, male chauvinist officials. Of course, they are also in the state. So there are all kinds of people. However, Overall, in the People's Republic of China, because of the feminists in the party, in the Communist Party, the first generation of feminists in the party, because of their efforts, they made equality between men and women uh, as a fundamental state policy. Also, it's written into the PRC's constitution. So that you know, and then generation after generation of the families pushed for uh, all these laws to protect women's equal rights. How? So, yeah. So if you if you look at uh, this realm, all these families within the system in the party, they have pushed, they have made tremendous efforts and accomplished a lot in putting all these uh, gender issues into the law to. Um, and then you will say, yeah, this is a, uh, a state that has a lot of pro-women laws and policies. But that was mostly the socialist legacy. And okay. as, as the socialist legacy has, I suppose, come apart in some ways, how has that shifted attitudes in wider society? I think... I was born in China in the 80s, so my, my grandmother uh -huh. and mother, you know, yeah. uh, grew up in, in earlier generations, and I feel that now there seems to be more pressure for women to be more feminine than maybe in, my, parents, in my mother's uh, time. Your parents were urban or rural? Urban, yeah. Okay, so how old, when were they born? In uh, Well, my grandmother was not born in Shanghai, but then she uh, moved to Shanghai uh, well, she actually joined the army and then moved to Shanghai uh, uh -huh. when she was about 30. Um, okay. And then that would have been uh, 
My mother was born in the mid-50s, in the 1950s. Your mother should be the generation that grew up uh, in the socialist period. Mm. And then equality between men and women was a dominant gender discourse. That's right. Yeah. And and images of women being very strong, being, you know, very much in uh, public space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that is the socialist state feminism. Uh, then when uh, things starting from late 1970s, especially entering the 80s, by the time when you were born, uh, there was a strong backlash against gender equality of the socialist period as part of the elite groups condemnation of socialism. And since then, uh, there's the rise of the gender discourse, I name it a discourse of femininity as a very strong uh, ideology that is uh, targeting or against gender equality. And they even condemned socialist gender equality as masculinization of women because in the socialist period, women were encouraged to break gender boundaries anywhere, everywhere. And then the post-socialist gender discourse of femininity, uh, they advocated uh, women should be real feminine women, so you shouldn't compete. I don't know if you're following the uh, recent uproar Around the uh, New Year, the New Year gala? Not, 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 not New Year. That the recent uproar is after the release of the five. So I'm so pleased. Feminists are all very pleased to see that uh, after the release of the five, and then all of a sudden there's a there's an uh, issue uh, went viral online. Uh, that was the Beijing Xicheng district. Uh, their Department of Civil Affairs. Uh, there's a poster in their office that is totally sexist poster. Okay, and the office was in charge of uh, registration of uh, marriage and divorce. So the poster has a picture of a uh, picture cartoon of a man and women, and then there's uh, a few lines saying that the greatest capacity for a woman is to be a good wife and a mother. Why do you have to squeeze hard into men's territory to fight with men for turfs and for resources? And you exhaust yourself to the point you spit blood. That was the poster Mm. on the wall of the government Mm. office building. So, and then, then all of a sudden somebody discovered that and had a picture of that and sent online and then tons of people just circulating that also uh, critiquing it. Mm. And, and, and that's a moment of totally feminist critique. You found the younger generation of women and even men found it outrageous that uh, the government office will have such a sexist poster. Mm. Yeah, it's a huge, <laughs> huge issue. That's a moment, uproar of feminist voices and feminist protest. 
uh, against and then the that that uh the manager of that office they have to remove that poster yeah mm-hmm. so yeah but but on the other hand you could tell uh the gender ideology of uh, femininity that women should be a good wife and mother uh, is really penetrating so deeply uh, into societies and not just society but also government no awareness awareness these government officials they should be the one to uh, implement the gender equality uh, laws and uh, you know basic policies but instead uh, they are promoting sexism so you could tell that that this cause of femininity is extremely strong and dominant in in China today Bisexual Alliance is a non-profit organisation dedicated to raising awareness and supporting people who are bisexual, people who are multi-gender attracted, their partners and their families. Bisexual Alliance runs several monthly discussion groups in and outside of Melbourne to offer support, a safe space to chat about your experiences and to explore others' experience of multi-gender attraction. These groups are for bisexuals, those who are questioning and their loved ones. For more information, visit bi-alliance.org or email info at by-alliance.org Slavery is back Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life Welcome to prison depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view, the people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick, and check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up, and we're still talking about revolution. Violence can destroy families. I decided one day that I could not stand having my children witnessing more of the physical, verbal, and emotional abuse. While I was facing issues of family violence, I heard about a service available to assist people in my situation called InTouch. I called InTouch and spoke with someone in my language. InTouch gave me the support I needed. Thanks to the people at InTouch, I've been able to rebuild a better life for my family. If you need advice, contact InTouch for a free and confidential discussion in your language by calling 1-800-755-988 or search InTouch Multicultural Centre online. InTouch. Brought to you by Victorian Women Lawyers and funded by Victoria Law Foundation. Welcome back to Queering the Air. Today we're discussing the recent arrest of five feminists in China and we just listened to more of the interview that Leah did with Dr Wang of the University of Michigan, which was very interesting. Yes, it was. And in that um, segment of the interview, you talked a bit about your um, family's history in China. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the experience of your mother and uh, grandmother growing up in China? 
Yeah, I think um, yeah, I, the, uh, it'll come up more in the inter- in the next uh, segment of the interview as well because I think one of the things that's really interesting um, about mainland China, about the People's Republic of China, um, given its socialist history, is the gender roles within uh, that society after uh, the revolution of 1949. So uh, my great-grandmother, my grandmother's mother, uh, who I suppose would have been born in probably the 1890s, was, um, you know, had bound feet, uh, was married very young, had a lot of children, uh, was illiterate, but also really saw the value of girls being educated. So she... um, uh, really took it upon herself to actually, she, you know, had her own little garden uh, within sort of the family farm and um, so saved and, and sold seeds at market to pay for her daughters to go to school. So my grandmother was one of, I think, only two girls in her graduating class of high school um, in her little village. And she went on, uh, she joined the army and also went on to university. So first went from uh, you know, her mother had never been to probably even primary school um, and she ended up eventually uh, going on to university and becoming a doctor. Um, and wow. this was in, my grandmother would have been born in the 20s. So she's of a generation that in a lot of parts of the world um, would not have uh, had much of an education at all. Um, so it was kind of like a really fast shift. Yeah, that's shift. a dramatic change mm. yeah, yeah. from one generation. Yeah, exactly. Um, and... Uh, I mean, a lot of other women at the time would not have had that experience, yeah. but, you know, uh, it's, it's really dramatic. Um, and then uh, my mother was born in the 50s, um, you know, shortly after the communists um, took over China. And so she grew up in sort of an era with this discourse of gender equality, which, you know, obviously was not perfectly fulfilled, yeah. but it was there. And so... Um, sort of yeah always having the expectation of of work and education and you know that that might mean that yeah women end up both doing like all the work inside the home as well as outside and they're still paid less and all of this but I think it is quite different like when I moved to Australia in the early 90s um, at that time like my mum was actually one of not many mothers at my primary school who was working full-time and uh, you know a lot of women did work full-time um, but it wasn't sort of, I think it was more the expectation in China than it was in Australia at the time. Yeah, just like you have a useful body and you need to be contributing sort of. That yeah, sort of, that kind yeah. of labour um, kind of thing. So I think that the different, um, yeah, the, the sort of socialist history gives it a really different uh, relationship to work. And it's interesting as well in Australia uh, and, and probably also in the US and other places that have had um, sort of Chinese migrants from diasporic Chinese backgrounds from, uh, you know, Malaysia and Singapore and Indonesia and uh, sometimes Hong Kong and Taiwan as well, that there's sort of like a different sense of Chinese femininity, um, like the stereotypes of sort of Chinese women that exist in the West, yeah. actually like you don't see in China um, because, yeah, I was born after the Cultural Revolution. Mm. So mm. like the kind of um, classical Chinese culture was sort of, um, yeah, I guess there was like a pushback against that. And Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's really interesting. Um, yeah, my mother uh, is Chinese-Malaysian, so she was born in Malaysia. Um, I think that her father migrated from China and I think that her mother was um, born in Malaysia as well. And uh, her mother's mother um, migrated from China. And, um, 
Yeah, she was born in 1949 and she had a, and her experience was, um, she grew up in rural Malaysia and had an experience of uh, a father, one, the only um, girl in the family among many brothers and her father really dissuaded her from um, pursuing education, but her mother really uh, encouraged it. And so she ended up um, becoming highly educated and, um, you know, as, as we are often reminded, was like the smartest person in Malaysia and given this award from the Sultan and given a scholarship <laughs> and became a teacher and ended up um, being quite responsible for lifting uh, the living conditions for a lot of her family um, through yeah. sending money back home and um, allowing her brothers to be educated and stuff like that. And um, it's interesting because I think that uh, there is this sort of racist Western notion of... Mm-hmm. Um, of oppressed, uh, a, a particular form of um, oppression that applies to uh, Chinese women of having to be super, super feminine or ha- having to have a certain brand of femininity. And, uh, and my mum's always uh, been very, very career driven. And, you know, like she, she's a very modest person and probably a socially mm. conservative person. But looking back in photo albums of like the early 70s when she was, um, you know, in her early 20s, she was totally doing the whole like mini tennis skirt thing and like oh my. <laughs> you know what I mean racy you know but um the smartest person in Malaysia yeah dressing like that I, I love know, it I know I <laughs> know um and yeah and she was very yeah. very career driven and, and uh likewise was one of the few mothers um when I was at primary school who worked full-time um and um in a very competitive profession as well so yeah this idea of the the humble Chinese housewife didn't really apply um yeah. to her either mm. um I think there's also also this idea though of that like overbearing like pushy sort of tiger mother and stuff mm-hmm. too which I guess is more associated with the oh no well, I think it's starting to just be an assumption that people have about Chinese women or Asian women but um definitely with the diaspora everyone's like oh they push their children so hard and mm-hmm. that kind of thing so it's not always I think that really passive role and I think that in my family definitely there was that sort of sense of um my grandmother came from she was Burmese Chinese and was um, part of a big family that had been living in Burma for a long time. They were well established there. Um, her husband was from, um, his family had migrated um, from China. And so he um, spoke, they both spoke several languages, but I think he would identify more as Chinese. Um, and, but so their culture was sort of like, he was the head of the household and he was sort of on paper, at least, the breadwinner. She was highly educated abroad and um, at home and spoke, you know, like French and German as well as like several Asian languages. And she was an English as a second language teacher. And so like she was also employed and, you know, it's not like she was a housewife or anything, but definitely he was sort of the head of the household and the boys that she had are sort of also like the prized sort of sons and stuff. But in terms of their dynamic at home, always growing up, I was so scared of my grandma. She was like a very scary lady. She was very strong. And my grandfather, who was also very strong and like very patient, um, definitely to me seemed to be I would never have as a child identified him as the head of the household. Mm. But I think that that is in some ways like uh, how people conceive of like a traditional sort of um, Chinese or Asian like power dynamic and the role of the woman is simultaneously like she's in the home but like maybe like the master of puppets or, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) you know. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, it is interesting the way that with 
the Cultural Revolution and and it's I think it's paralleled a lot in like the West with the Industrial Revolution, the way that that moved from sort of like an agrarian model to um, you know factories and industry, and it that had a really big impact on a lot of different roles in the family and mm. the way that like elderly people were treated and they no longer are useful bodies and can contribute in ways that maybe they could have previously and it's undermined whereas in the socialist society it was like women's role is like heightened and it is so important but I think that simultaneously though that doesn't necessarily mean that like equality in social settings like we're talking all about like my mum worked full time or, you know, it's really important as part of this revolution that women's labour was, you know, capitalised on. But that doesn't necessarily mean that sexual harassment, things like that, um, and, like, some of these organisers were organising around the HIV, AIDS activism and stuff, like, that kind of discrimination really has nothing to do with, like, labour or... Anyway. Yeah, and and I think it's interesting as well... um, I mean, obviously, from our perspective, we we're all talking about our um, our mothers and our grandmothers, so we're thinking of them in a domestic setting. But um, when you were talking about tiger moms earlier, I thought that was really interesting because I think that, in general, when the West thinks of uh, Chinese women, um, whether uh, having been born in different countries or women of Chinese backgrounds, they don't think of them outside of the domestic model in terms mm. of racist stereotypes. They think of them as housewives mm. or male order brides or um, or tiger moms, but they don't think of them as political activists or, or really being mm. having political agency mm. at all. And so I think that that's really interesting, um, the way that uh, this case has been sort of... Um, has been sort of uh, popularised across the media and stuff, I think has been the first... Um, Example that we've well, that I've seen um, in recent memory of uh, of Chinese women being um, seen as political activists. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting to see um, you know the, the things that Dr. Wong talked about about the feminist bureaucracy in China mm. as well. Like I wasn't aware of the extent of that, and of course you know so I think in this case even a lot of the coverage has kind of been like oh the patriarchal conservative state sort of without being like well yeah of course the state in China is as diverse as the state anywhere else. It includes um, all of these different departments, like some of which do really good work, some of which are awful, you know, um, there's, there's, as well as being sort of the politicians, there's, there's all of these services um, and arms. And, you know, some of them are currently like passing laws around domestic violence. Some of them, you know, um, they're all doing different things, but also one thing, you know, around labor and sort of social power that, um, I noticed while sort of researching around this is that actually the wage gap in China has widened quite a lot, um, the sort of gendered wage gap since the 70s. Uh, I can't remember the exact right. figures, but it's actually got worse, which is interesting because actually um, I remember once my mum telling me offhand, and I was so surprised by this, that um, my grandparents on my dad's side, for quite a long time, my grandmother made more money than my grandfather. And this is, you know, in sort of the... Uh, 50s and 60s so that's like I was totally shocked by that even like you know that I knew their jobs and stuff um and you know when my parents came here and uh, sort of yeah went through this sort of weird class transition thing of um uh becoming working class um sort of quickly from being like lower middle class to to working class when we moved here and, and working in factories um yeah I feel like they also entered this kind of uh, yeah, there's these perceptions about what migrant families are like and how conservative they are that is, like, 
completely disregards the specific histories and cultures and societies that everyone comes from that are, you know, radically different from each other. Absolutely. And often, yeah, associated with being, say, very very conservative, very religious, mm-hmm. very traditional, and they, you know, come from post-cultural revolution, atheist China. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, in the next segment, actually, we talk a little bit about, about religion. So Great. Well, let's take mm. a listen to that now. Where are those discourses um, of sexism coming from? Are they just coming from the right or, you know, in the US and Australia we often see conservatism <coughs> that's uh, and, and anti-LGBT yeah, policies? People, right? Yeah, linked to yeah, religion, in but in China it's, it's different. Uh, started in the 19, late 1970s, the 80s, uh, started from elite men. Mm. And uh, the, the, all those men with discursive power men who have a voice, men who can write, men who can publish, okay? And they package it, um, this kind of sexist ideology, they package it as, as uh, ideology of modernity because the context is that they are the progressive, they were in the 1980s, they were the progressive people who were fighting against socialism, okay? So if socialism uh, upheld gender equality and masculinized women, so they were the ones who restored femininity and restored the real human nature. So they were the progressive. They were the modern people. Right. It's, it's, <laughs> so that's the logic, okay? Mm. And, and then pretty soon you have this... Uh, capitalist consumerism dominated China all over the places, right? And then all the advertisement mm. also jumped on the bandwagon and to sell real femininity is to buy this, buy that, using cosmetics, you know, uh, to make you a genuine, real uh, feminine woman. So instantly uh, that kind of ideology became dominant it by both by the elite men and by the market. Mm. So, Professor yeah. Wong, I also want to ask specifically about uh, this case of the of the uh, five women detained before uh-huh. International <clears throat> Women's Day. Uh, there was obviously a very large campaign in China and abroad mm-hmm. uh, for their release. Mm-hmm. What grassroots international actions are helpful in solidarity with Chinese activists? Mm-hmm. And um, how how can activists abroad rebut the government's claims of foreigners attacking Chinese sovereignty that seem to come up every time? <laughs> the great question. Great question. Uh, that emerged, that accusation, that familiar accusation emerged right away, actually, in the first... Uh, couple of weeks in the context of these five detained feminists, we heard this kind of saying emerged, uh, saying that, oh, these five women, you know, you don't know, you know, you shouldn't join the, uh, the, the, the appeal to release them because you don't know their background. There are very complicated uh, foreign forces behind them. So, so I said, okay, uh, in today's world, we really need to have a clear definition. What are you going to 
define as hostile enemy forces. And also I say you need to be careful because the Chinese state supports feminism, global feminism. See, they sponsored 1995 World Women's Conference, and they're also doing Beijing Plus 20, and they plan to uh, co-host a global summit for women with U United Nations. And all these are the manifestations of the forces of global feminism. You know, you have to uh, make a clear statement. You ca you have to let us know which side are you standing, are you siding with? Are you siding with Taliban regarding feminism as a hostile force? You know, or you you are not. You know, so so they they came out to say that uh, oh, Chinese government always supports women's rights and feminism is not an issue and blah blah blah. <laughs> yeah, because the Chinese government is sponsoring all these uh, uh, conferences with UN, you know, in China, Beijing plus 20, all these activities, they're engaging with that, right? Of course, the concrete uh, the branches are mostly all China Women's Federation, but they're part of the government. They're all on the government payroll, right? So, so you cannot uh, make global feminism illegal. You cannot. So as long as you cannot do that, yeah, everything we do is totally legitimized. That's and right. this time, yeah, this time the support, the appeal, the global mobilization is a big show of global feminism. It's a huge show of global feminism, all the solidarities between, you know, feminists located all over the world. And we, we even don't know who they are, but they just all join the petition. You know, people even in Australia, like you, you are also concerned about this, right? Because this is a global globalization, year of globalization. And this is the era of internet, you know. Mm -hmm. So you cannot imagine that something happening in China that nobody will know. No, this is not that kind of historical period anymore. That's right. And yeah. yeah, yes, it's the, such a wanton violation of women's rights by the police. Of course, families all over the world just jump on, jump on it and uh, want to do something about that. Mm, and you that can is see called that there yeah. were uh, there were protests in Japan, in Hong Kong, in India, in oh, the yeah. US. People taking photos yeah, all over the all world. Over the world. Yeah. Yeah. All over the world. All over the world. Yeah. So so but but before that, the Chinese government and mostly uh those, you know, if you talk about those police, you know, mostly those men in charge of the police force and whatever, they had no knowledge of global feminism. And mostly of those sexist men, they, they didn't care anything about women, right? So it's not to their knowledge. Mm. And so this is a big lesson for them to see that, oh, wow, there's such a global foreign force. Mm -hmm. It's not just foreign, it's global, it's all over the places, including China, you're part of the global, you know? And the Chinese government is hosting all these UN conferences and summit for women, right? So you're part of the process. Mm. 
Welcome back to Queering the Air. I'm joined in the studio with Jesse and Leah, and we just heard the last part of Leah's interview with Dr. Wang from the University of Michigan about the situation with the arrests of the feminist activists in China. We did. And um, one thing that was quite interesting to me um, that you spoke about in the last interview was the international response. Um, And uh, I suppose I wanted to ask uh, both of you about what you think about... um, responding uh, to people who are oppressed internationally without, um, while being culturally appropriate, you know, while, without um, sort of threatening the ideas that might be in other people's cultures and, and while still remaining um, reflexive about your own. Um, firstly, Leah, what do you think about the, res- the international response to the Feminist Five? Um, could you tell us a little bit about it and, um, yeah, what you, what you thought about uh, the responses from, I know, the you know, Hillary Clinton came out quite strongly against it um, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Dr Wang and I actually talked at length about that question and I, I edited it down a bit, but one of the things that she said was, yeah, initially that the Chinese government had this sort of... Um, response of it being like, oh, well, you can't trust these women because you don't know what foreign forces are behind them. And uh, Dr. Wong had had written about that being like, well, what do you mean foreign forces? Like, do you mean like the US? Because do you actually think the CIA is like planting young women to do feminist action? Like that really, as she said, that really overestimates the sort of feminist (laughs) credentials of any foreign government's like intelligence organisation. Um, But then, yeah, also being like, yeah, what we mean by foreign forces is a global feminism that uh, Chinese feminism is part of. And Mm. I think so what was successful about this campaign, I think, was that it highlighted uh, the Chinese state and civil society's own goals. But, you know, the Chinese government um, obviously hosted the the Beijing uh, conference 20 years ago and then this year has now just um, is going to be co-hosting a uh, summit with the UN, I think, in September. Mm. That's the uh, World Summit for Women. So it's like they want and they have, you know, public very publicly declared sort of on the international stage that they want to be seen as a leader um, on these same issues that these women are protesting exactly. against. So I think if actions understand and sort of the political context in that country uh, where sort of civil society is at and um, and responds to it in a way that is going to, um, I guess, ask the decision makers or sort of reveal to the decision makers um, their own statements that, that, you know, in terms of value should be in support of actions like this. Um, I think that's been helpful. But probably what's been... Uh, best is that it's been a huge grassroots campaign and uh, so it's shown that this is a really big movement, a really big movement of people within and outside China, within China linked to all of these different sort of um, spheres of action and then outside China. Um, And in terms of, um, I guess, thinking about sort of global feminism and uh, cultural um, I suppose, suppose almost like cultural closeness. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of the um, places that had the most actions were through Asia. So there were there were protests in I think in Delhi, uh, in uh, Hong Kong, in Japan, I think in Korea. So quite a lot of feminists sort of around the region, yeah. um, which I guess is is good for showing that it's not sort of this either. Um, you know, a Western issue or an issue from from sort of countries really far away. Uh, I think that sort of action was probably uh, really positive and maybe um, 
a bit harder for the government to sort of just dismiss as being foreign compared to sort of like big name um, people like Hillary Clinton speaking out. Mm. But um, Eve Ensler spoke out actually, the writer of the Vagina Monologues, and she, um, you know, there, there were these links because one of the women had actually staged um, the Vagina Monologues uh, in China at one point. So it's like you can't. Yeah, you can't you kind of can't separate that foreignness so much in yeah. a society that is so globally connected um, in terms of like its media inputs. Like that feminism isn't going in one direction. You know, there are all these ideas sort of um, in exchange with each other. Hmm. Yeah, and one thing that I thought was really positive about the campaigns were that they were um, they did seem to be all they were organised campaigns rather than. Um, simply just cultural critiques from other um, from other countries, yeah. you know. I mean, that's one thing that strikes me as being very negative um, about, uh, about I think, sometimes Western feminism um, speaking out against things that happen in other countries, that they take the form of cultural critiques rather than being um, campaigns to uh, for material change and mm-hmm. they, they seem to be um, speaking for people rather than in solidarity with people. Yeah. Um, so this one seemed, um, by contrast, quite positive, I think. Yeah, I think it's like I understand like how people can be tempted to do that because when you see something that goes so against your own values or, or whatever that you want to condemn it and call it out. Um, but at the same time, yeah, and what I, th- I agree was so great about this campaign is that it seemed like the organising and the... And, and the critique that came elsewhere um, followed the lead of activists and people in China who were responding to it. And I think that that's definitely something that we can always, like, turn to. And, and rather than being, like, let's, tr- like, you know, groundswell elsewhere and, like, bring our advice and our perspective on something, but rather, like, turn to people who were living there and dealing with it day to day and, you know, all the women who were organising and the activists who were there who weren't, you know, arrested and being like, what can we do? And like looking to what they are doing and what they want us to do. So yeah, that was a really, it was a really like uplifting. (laughs) Well, I mean, the charges haven't been dropped, so it's not 100% uplifting, but like, yeah, I think it was such an effective campaign. It's, it's just been, you know, it's been good to follow aside from the 37 days, as we said. Exactly. <laughs> Detained. Well, thank you very much for joining us in the studio. Yes, today thank you. That. And I'll just mention that you can keep following the campaign and keep campaigning for the charges to be dropped. Um, there's a few different websites and things, but probably if you're on Facebook, uh, if you search for Free Chinese Feminists, that's the Facebook page that's been posting a lot um, around this. And there's uh, now quite a few of the women and one of their girlfriends and um, family members have uh, sort of told their stories as well. Uh, so keep campaigning for the charges to be dropped. There's also a Tumblr I th- that I think is uh, freethefive.tumblr.com. Cool. Um, and before we go, I also want to do a quick plug for a project that's currently um, going to be happening at the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health um, over the next six months. So it's called Our Voices Changing Cultures, and they're looking for young LGBTI or same-sex attracted women who are 28 years or less from refugee or culturally diverse migrant backgrounds. Um, and they'll be asking you about your thoughts and opinions on culture as a grounding force, mental health and well-being, visibility and whiteness in mainstream LGBTI cultures and the idea of coming out. So if you want to take part or um, attend the first group discussion, which will be happening on May 12th at 6.30pm, please contact Monique. Um, So her email address is m-o-n-i-q-u-e at mcwh.com. Yeah. 
Great. Well, thanks everyone for another great episode of Queering the Air. Um, up next is Democracy Now. Have a wonderful week. Bye. 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 Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au.